0: Welcome to Thrive Community Podcast. We are a church community that is passionate about helping you thrive in your life with Jesus. If you're after more information about Thrive Community, hop onto our website at www.thrivecommunity.au. We hope you feel encouraged and inspired by this message. Well, I wanted to start with um, a passage from the New Testament and the the words of Jesus in Matthew 13, 52. We don't necessarily need to turn to all of the passages if you want to, by all means, um, follow along. So Matthew 13, 52, I'm just going to read from the New King James. and And it says, Therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven, is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. And what I love about that passage is it's talking about the bringing together of new and old. Right, that the kingdom of heaven is found when the treasure of both the new and old are brought together. It's not. It's not just the old. It's not just the new. But it's both of them together. It's not either or. It's it's both and more. As I heard someone say a number of years ago, and and I believe that we're in a time in history where God is doing something new but at the same time, bringing us back to the old and ancient paths. And so there's this coming together of, of new and old. And part of returning back to those old ancient paths is also honoring and understanding the Jewish roots of our faith. It's, it's bringing the old and the New Testament together as one narrative, as as one story. And I think sometimes as Western Christians in the context of Australia, perhaps we leave the Old Testament aside sometimes thinking that, well, that was the law and it's not as relevant for us today, but I want to kind of go on a bit of a journey and hopefully we can begin bringing new covenant perspective to, to Old Testament prophecies and, and truth because the heart of God, the gospel of Jesus, it's it's all throughout the whole Testament and so many of the promises and the purposes and the truths that were given to Moses 3,500 years ago, they remain just as powerful today because our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when we think about that bringing together of old and new, I think one of the best pictures to describe that relationship between Old Testament, and New Testament, between old Jewish law and, and new covenant Christianity, new covenant relationship with Jesus is the picture of an olive tree. And, and I don't pick that because I'm... You know, an expert on olive trees, or know a whole lot about them. <laughs> to be honest, we we had one in our backyard at our old place, and while I was initially excited about it, I looked up how long it takes to actually make olives, you know, in the format that we eat them, and I think it's like six or nine months. And so I gave up on that. And and apart from the kids just picking the olives and throwing them at each other, it didn't get any other use. So it sat there for a number of years. This this isn't my idea or my picture. It actually comes from the Apostle Paul and the apostle paul used the the image of an olive tree when he was writing in his letter in, to the church in rome in romans and romans 11:16 to 18 he talks about the olive tree and uses that as a as a picture of how the old and the new the jews and the gentiles come together so romans 11:16 to 18 i'm going to read from the amplified and it says if the first portion of dough offered as the first fruits is holy so is the whole batch and if the root being Abraham and the patriarchs is holy so are the branches the israelites but if some of the branches were broken off and you gentiles being like a wild olive shoot were grafted in among them to share with them the rich root of the olive tree do not boast over the broken branches and exalt yourself at their expense if you do boast and feel superior remember that it is not you who supports the root but the root that supports you and so there's a picture here of the the root of the olive tree being Really, the the Jews, the patriarchs, Abraham, that's the root of the olive tree. And then we are these wild branches that have been grafted in to the original Jewish roots. And I really love that picture because what that does is it kind of shows us how the, the roots fit together with our new covenant relationship with Jesus So we've got the the roots, the Jewish roots of our faith. And Jesus says in his own words in John 15, that he is the vine and we are the branches. And so you've got the the Jewish roots, Jesus as the vine, and we're the branches that fit into that. And I think that's a a really powerful picture of how it all works together, that we need to have a a deep revelation and understanding of the, the Jewish roots of our faith. We need to have a living connection with the vine and our living relationship with Jesus. And those two things together help us to be fruitful branches for the glory of God. And I think, unfortunately, in large parts of of the the church in in the Western world, we we don't have much of an understanding of the Jewish roots of our faith. And I think it's important that we do grow in that because if we have limited understanding of the roots that are supporting us, then it's going to impact the choices that we make in, in our life with the Lord right? Branches behave differently depending on whether they're confident in the roots that are holding them up or not. And so, being able to grow in our understanding of that, I think will help us to be even more fruitful in our life for, for Jesus and our life for the Lord. And so, my prayer tonight and also next week is that, you know, by Holy Spirit and by the grace of God, we would grow not just in our understanding and our revelation of the roots of our faith, but also in our personal relationship with the vine, our personal relationship with, with Jesus and Jesus talks about this in in Luke 24. after his resurrection he's walking on the road to Emmaus with two of his of his followers and they don't know that it's Jesus and they're having this conversation and and in Luke 24: 27 Jesus says that he took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself I find that amazing but at that stage, All they had was the Old Testament, and he took them through all the scriptures explaining the things concerning himself. So that tells me that the Old Testament is full of things that point to Jesus, full of Jesus. And then at the end of that conversation, the two followers say to themselves, didn't our hearts burn within, within us as He talked with us on the road and explained the Scriptures to us? It's this combination of head knowledge, understanding the Scriptures, and their hearts burning for Jesus, and those two things coming together. That it's not just head, it's not just heart, but we would grow in our revelation, but also grow in our passion and hunger for Jesus. And so, Paul, and I've mentioned this in, I think, the very first post, of the very first video I did in leading into to so this time tonight from Colossians chapter two, Paul in his letter to the Colossians says a very similar thing. He says in, in Colossians two, sixteen to seventeen, therefore do not let anyone judge you with respect to food or drink, or in the matter of a feast, new moon, or Sabbath days. These are only the shadow of the things to come, but the reality is Christ. And I love that because what it's saying is that the Old Testament law, including the feasts, is just a shadow that points to the reality of Jesus. And so the more we understand the Old Testament, the more we understand the shadow, the more we're able to be pointed to the reality of Christ. And so with that in mind, we're going to begin looking at the Jewish feasts. And hopefully, as we go on this journey together, we'll begin bringing the old and the new together. We'll get a greater understanding of the shadows and then encounter more of the reality of Jesus. And before we jump into the the feasts and the passage that talks into them. I thought I'd just throw a disclaimer out there. Most of you might know this, but I'm a lawyer, so I love a good disclaimer. And I just wanted to say that I'm not the first person to talk about this. Some of this has been written about by people for many, many years. And I, I don't have a degree in biblical history or Jewish studies. You know, there's lots of people out there that know heaps more about this than I do, but it's just something that God has stirred in my heart quite a number of years ago and has been a passion of mine around praying and reading and researching and growing in my own understanding of the Jewish roots of of our faith. And so it's something I'm passionate about and a little fire that God has put in my heart. And so with that disclaimer out of the way, we're going to jump into Leviticus 23, and that's going to be our main passage in going through the feasts. So Leviticus 23, and I won't read it all now, um, and we'll look at different bits as we go through tonight and obviously more bits next week as well. But as we read through Leviticus 23, it talks about seven different feasts, although really it's it's six feasts and, and one fast. And interestingly, it, it says that they are the Lord's appointed time or the Lord's appointed festivals, depending on the translation you're reading from Leviticus 23. And it starts off, it mentions the Sabbath, And then it goes through Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Firstfruits, the Feast of Harvest or Weeks, which we call Pentecost. It's the Feast of Trumpets, which later became the Jewish New Year or Rosh Hashanah, which you you might be familiar with. There's the the Day of Atonement, which is the one fast. The rest of them are, are feasts. And then the last one is the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths, Feast of Shelters, depending on the translation, they use different words. So there's six different feasts and one fast. And the timing of these feasts, they're all celebrated based on the, the Jewish calendar, which is different to our calendar that that we use. So the first four being Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, and the Feast of Weeks or, or Pentecost are all celebrated around April, May pretty much aligned with, with what we would kind of have around the timing of, of Easter. And these are known as the, the spring feasts. And they're called the spring feasts because Israel's in the Northern Hemisphere and April, May is, is springtime. While it's autumn for us, it's, it's spring for, for Israel. And amazingly, all four of those feasts were fulfilled in Jesus' first coming. So his first coming fulfilled in amazing detail those four feasts, the shadows of those four clearly pointed to the reality of Jesus' first coming. And then the last three, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles, those three are celebrated September, October, and this year they start next Friday the 15th, Um, and they're called the Fall Feasts because it's fall or autumn in the Northern Hemisphere in, in Israel. And those three feasts prophetically point to the time when Jesus is going to come back and they'll be fulfilled at his second coming. And that alone is amazing that there's this distinction between him fulfilling the first four in his first coming and then prophetically looking to what he's going to do when he comes back and returns. And the only other point I wanted to make as a bit of an introduction is that if you read through Leviticus 23, there's one other phrase that's repeated a number of times. And and that is, it says, it shall be a statute forever and throughout your generations. And again, the wording might be slightly different depending on your translation, but it's amazing that these feasts are one of the very few things in the Old Testament law that God says are a statute forever throughout your generations. And, you know, we've been grafted into the olive tree, as I was mentioning just a few minutes ago. Obviously, we're no longer under the law, and we don't need to religiously follow rules and rituals but I do believe that there's something about, you know, honoring these feasts that that honors the Lord. There's something about being able to keep the truth of these feasts alive for our current generation that honors the Lord and his heart for us. And I think a great way to be able to honor the feasts and keep the truth of the feasts alive for us today is to be able to connect those with the person of Jesus, right? We're living in a time where Jesus is so real and so present. We've got the the blessing of a new covenant relationship with him and being able to connect the feasts with Jesus and all that he has done is a great way to continue to honour the feasts in our our day. So today or tonight, we're going to look at the first three feasts and then we'll cover the, the next four next week. So we're going to look at Passover, Unleavened Bread, and first fruits tonight, and look, part of that is just focusing on Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and also trying to kind of split the time between the two. I think we'll go through things in a bit more detail tonight, simply because we have the the facts of Jesus in his first coming, right? We know exactly what happened, and so we can begin to see the parallels in greater detail next week. We're obviously looking forward to when Jesus comes back, and there's only a handful of passages in Scripture that, that point to how all of that is going to come together. So, if we look at Passover, Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of, of first fruits, all three of these feasts, they all happen within a relatively short period of time, and they're all very closely related. And, and from a Jewish perspective, they all speak to the Israelite exodus from Egypt— and then their journey into the promised land and you know passover which i'm sure you would have heard of before and i know for us as a thrive community we've done passover dinners the, the last few years it's sometimes used as a general statement that covers all of these feasts so you might hear you know the term passover the feast of passover and often that can be a reference to both passover the feast of unleavened bread and and also first fruits But if we look at the detail of of these three that are described as individual feasts in Leviticus 23, the first reference comes from Leviticus 23 and verse 5. Leviticus 23 and verse 5. And it says, first comes the Lord's Passover, which begins at twilight on its appointed day in early spring. That's the, the New Living Translation, Leviticus 23 verse six in the the New King James, it says, on the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. And so I'm going to focus on on the New King James because it provides a little bit more detail. Some of the New Living and the NIV um, focus on kind of seasons and trying to make it relevant for us and our, our current calendar whereas the New King James, the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. So that that day was Wednesday, the 5th of April this year, from sundown on Wednesday, the 5th of April through to sundown on Thursday, the 6th of April, the Jewish day starts at, at sundown. So it was, you know, that, that Thursday, the 6th of April, when the primary day of Passover was this year, that was the day before Good Friday. So it all happens around the, the time of, of Easter. And it's Exodus chapter 12, that is the the passage where God lays out how Passover is to be celebrated. So Exodus 12, I'm going to read from verse 5, and I'll kind of skip a couple of verses here and there, but work through Exodus 12, 5 to 8, 10 and and 13, and provide an overview of, of what the Passover celebration looked like. And so it says, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. So that's the day that's referred to in Leviticus 23. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. You might remember this is in the context of the ten plagues, and the last plague that comes is um, the angel of death passing over and, and killing the firstborn of the Egyptians. And the blood on the doorposts meant that the Israelites, the angel of death, passed over them, and they didn't have their firstborn killed. So that's kind of the summary of what Passover looks like in terms of how it's celebrated. If we jump back to Leviticus 23, and this is the continuation of how the Feast of Unleavened Bread and first fruits is described. And it says, on the 15th day of the same month, this is from verse 7, on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So on the 14th day, you've got the Feast of Passover. The very next day, on the 15th day of the month, is the Feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. In other words, it's a Sabbath, but you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. So it's a seven day feast and you've got a Sabbath on the first and a Sabbath on the last. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land which I'm to give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. So this is talking about the feast of first fruits. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And so setting out a bit of a timeline here at, at twilight literally between the two evenings is what the word means. Um, on the 14th day of the first month, which is the the month of, of Nisan, that's when the Passover lamb without blemish is to be killed. So it's a, a twilight between the two evenings on the 14th day. Then the next day on the 15th, it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and that's celebrated for seven days. And the reason it's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread is because when the Israelites left Egypt, they had to leave really quickly and they didn't have time to add yeast to their dough. Exodus 1239 says, with the dough the Israelites had brought from Egypt, they baked loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. So it's flat bread. Um, if you've seen matzah or been to a, a Passover meal before, you've got it's almost like a cracker because there's there's no yeast in the bread. And then the feast of first fruits is celebrated on the day after the Sabbath. And then that's speaking about the day after the first Sabbath after Passover. So you've got Passover, the next day is the feast of unleavened bread, and then the first Sunday after that is when the day of, of first fruits. Um, is celebrated. And the the reason we get Sunday is because according to Jewish tradition, Sabbath is celebrated on a Saturday. And so, if the feast is celebrated the day after the Sabbath, then it's celebrated on a Sunday. So, uh, again, Passover lamb slaughtered in the mid to late afternoon. You put the blood on the doorposts that night. That night, you share a Passover meal. The next day is the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then the first Sunday after that, is the feast of first fruits and the reason I went through that timeline is some of that is is relevant as we jump to the new testament now and look at Jesus last few days and his crucifixion death burial and and resurrection because all of the gospels and I'm sure you would be familiar with this they all clearly say that Jesus was crucified during the time of passover right if you read through the end of whether it's Matthew Mark Luke or John they're all talking about passover preparing for the passover meal And Jesus himself speaks about that and speaks to his disciples about preparing for the Passover. And and what I want to do really for the rest of our time tonight is just walk through Jesus' death, burial and resurrection. And I pray that we'll begin to see just how amazing the word of God is. And that Jesus' first coming was the perfect, complete fulfillment of these three feasts. That he fulfilled every little detail of those three feasts. Feasts, which I, I find absolutely amazing, given it was written fifteen hundred years before Jesus was born, and Jesus himself hinted that this was going to be the case. In in Matthew five, he says, "From seventeen and eighteen, do not think that I came to do away with or undo the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill." For I assure you and most solemnly say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of the pen will pass from the law, until all things which it foreshadows are accomplished. I find that amazing that Jesus himself is saying, I've come to fulfill the law, and even the smallest detail, the smallest stroke of the pen, everything that those parts of the law foreshadow will be accomplished. And certainly the things that are foreshadowed in Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits were accomplished through Jesus' first coming. And so looking at Passover first, that's the first one that's mentioned, and the first one that happens in the sequence of time. The, the New Testament in multiple places tells us that Christ is our Passover Lamb. And all throughout Revelation, Jesus is described as, as the Lamb of God. So John 1:29. And it says, the next day, John, speaking of John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And 1 Corinthians 5, 7 to 8 says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new batch just as you are still unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and untainted Truth, And I find that passage from 1 Corinthians fascinating, that that here is Paul writing to the church in Corinth, which is made up primarily of Gentile believers, so not made up of, of Jews. And he's telling them after Jesus has died, after Jesus has been resurrected, after Jesus has gone to heaven, he's telling them to let's celebrate the feast of Passover. Let's celebrate the Jewish feasts in the context of a new covenant Gentile church community. And history would tell us that for the first few hundred years of church history, almost everyone, whether they were Jewish, whether they weren't, were celebrating the Jewish feast together. And it wasn't until a couple hundred years after Jesus' resurrection that a lot of that stuff started to fall away as there was greater tension between the Jews and the Romans. And look, the the church history discussion around some of that perhaps is a a topic for another night, Um, but Ultimately, the very beginning of the church, the early church, were a community of people who celebrated the Jewish feasts. And Christmas and Easter were actually things that were added, you know, more like 300 AD um, later on. And we've kind of kept those traditions. And sadly, a lot of the, the Jewish feasts have fallen away from our walk with the Lord. And I believe it's, you know, time as, as God is returning and rebuilding things that we're being restored back to so much of the heart of the early church. And that includes honoring the the Jewish feasts and the Jewish roots of our faith. And so Exodus 12, coming back to Passover, if you remember just before we were reading through Exodus 12, and when it comes to the Passover lamb, it says that your lamb shall be without blemish. And obviously we know that Jesus himself was without sin, unblemished from the stain of sin. And the lamb was to be killed at twilight in between the two evenings. So effectively late afternoon before the sun goes down. And, and rabbinic tradition, the, you know, the, the traditions of the rabbis over the generations, they say that the slaughter of the Passover offerings took place between 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. in the afternoon, which is between the two evenings. And I don't know if anyone knows off the top of their head, but, you know, guess what time Jesus was crucified? If you read through Mark fifteen thirty-three to 37, talking about those last few hours of Jesus on the cross, and it says, when the sixth hour or when noon came, darkness covered the whole land until 3 p.m. And at 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabatani," which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders heard him and said, look, he is calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink, saying, let us see whether Elijah is coming to take him down. But Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed out his last. It's just amazing that here, It's telling us that Jesus died at some time shortly after 3 p.m., which is within the exact same three-hour window that the Passover lamb had been slain for 1,500 years, every single year before Jesus was born. At exactly the same time, in exactly the same window, our Passover lamb, Jesus, died upon the cross. And again, just demonstrating that the smallest detail of the Jewish feast was fulfilled accomplished through the life of Jesus and his first coming. So Jesus was crucified. He was nailed to the cross. He had nails in, in both hands or in his wrists, nailed through his feet, a crown of thorns pushed into his scalp. You know, the the, the Greek word underneath that kind of placed or pushed on his head is, is violently forced on his head. And he would have had blood And we talked about this as a Thrive community leading into Easter earlier this year, just the sacrifice that Jesus endured and how he would have been completely covered in blood and the symbol of that blood as our redemption and our healing. But primarily it was the nails through his wrists, his feet, and then the crown of thorns upon his head. Blood spilled for our deliverance. And the instruction that was given to the Israelites when they were to kill the Passover lamb, what were they to do with the blood? They would have taken it and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of their houses. See, there would be blood on the the left hand doorpost, blood on the right hand doorpost, blood on the top of the door frame, and that blood on the top would have dripped down and made a puddle of blood on the threshold of the door frame as well. So there would have been blood in four places in each of their homes. And when you think about that picture, it just represents so perfectly the picture of Jesus on the cross. He had blood on the left hand, he had blood on the right hand, he had blood on his head at the top of his body, and he had blood at his feet at the bottom of his body. Again, a perfect fulfillment of what was foreshadowed in the law of Moses, that the blood on either side of the doorframe, the top and the bottom was perfectly fulfilled in the blood of Jesus in either side, in his wrists, as well as his head and his feet. And the next instruction, as you read through Exodus 12, it says, they shall eat the flesh on that night. So they kill the lamb, they place the blood on the doorpost, and then they're meant to eat the flesh of that lamb on that night, roasted in the fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. They shall eat it. You shall let none of it remain until morning. And that instruction comes from Exodus 12, 8 to 10. See, the Passover lamb had to be put in the fire that very night and was not allowed to remain until the morning. And guess what happened to Jesus on the cross? Again, Mark 15 from verse 42, when the evening had already come because it was the preparation day. And again, that's talking about preparing for the Sabbath the next day because the feast of unleavened bread The first day is a Sabbath. And so they were preparing for that the day before the Sabbath. Joseph of Arimathea came and he courageously dared to go in before Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus. And so Joseph purchased the fine linen cloth. And after taking Jesus down from the cross, he wrapped him in the linen cloth and placed him in a tomb, which had been cut out of the rock. And so Jesus was taken down from the cross the very night that he was crucified. And so in the same way that the Passover lamb was put in the fire, consumed that night, so too Jesus, our Passover lamb. He entered into the fire of Hades that very night. He was consumed with our sin that very night with nothing of his righteousness remaining in the morning. In the same way that the Passover lamb for 1500 years had been consumed with nothing left in the morning, Jesus too was consumed in the fire of Hades with none of his righteousness left the next morning. And Exodus 12 tells us the reason the blood was to be put on those doorposts, the reason Passover was put in place from the very beginning, was so that the blood would be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, this is God speaking, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And that is exactly what happens to us when we receive Jesus as our Lord and our Savior, when we apply His blood to the doorposts of our hearts. You know, when God's divine judgment comes to visit us, He sees the blood of Jesus and He passes over us so that the plague of sin and death will not destroy us. Just such outstanding news that when divine judgment comes to visit us, if we've made Jesus our Lord and Savior, God sees the blood of Jesus on the doorposts of our hearts, passes over us, and it means that the plague of sin and death will no longer destroy us. Hebrews 12, 24, right? You have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people, and to the sprinkled blood who speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. We've got the blood of Jesus that speaks a better word, that speaks a better word of redemption, a better word of forgiveness rather than vengeance and judgment. And and I've been really struck by this picture this week in preparing and and praying for tonight, that really God's divine judgment, no matter who we are and people all over the world, one day sooner or later, God's divine judgment is going to visit the house of their heart as well. And just being stirred again of the importance of being people who live out our faith. And I don't necessarily do a great job of this, but sharing our faith and recognizing that one day sooner or later, God's judgment is going to visit the house of every single person's heart. And whether they have the blood of Jesus on the doorposts of their heart will determine whether they are destroyed or whether they're not. And that in itself, I found a a really confronting and sobering thought this week. And and you can see through all of that just how perfectly Jesus fulfilled the Passover. And and if we come back to our timeline, right, we said that the Passover, the the lamb was killed at twilight, and then the blood was put on the doorposts, and then they share in the Passover meal that night. And we read that Joseph came and got Jesus off the cross that, that very night as well. And as I mentioned before, the Jewish day begins at sundown, from sundown to sundown. And so when Jesus was taken from the cross, that means that it was the next day because they passed beyond sundown. It was, in fact, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the 15th day of, of Nisan, when Jesus was taken down from the cross, he was wrapped in the linen cloth and buried in the tomb. That happened on the 15th day, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And if you remember... The Feast of Unleavened Bread, it's really just all about bread without yeast, bread without leaven. And Exodus 12 tells us what leaven represents. Some of you would be well aware of this already, but Exodus 12:15 says, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove the leaven from your houses because it represents the spread of sin. For whoever eats unleavened bread on the first day throughout the seventh day, that person shall be cut off and excluded from the atonement made for Israel. You see, the, the day Jesus was buried, on that very day, the Jews were required to move remove all of the leaven from their houses because it represented the spread of sin. The day Jesus was buried was when the Jews were clearing their houses of what represented sin. And so for 1,500 years prior to this point, The Jewish people were removing the symbol of sin from their homes on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And on exactly that day in AD 33, Jesus was buried in the tomb and removed the sin from our hearts in the same way that the Jews had been for 1500 years, removing the sin from their homes. And again, that's just such a powerful picture of what Christ has done for us. The righteousness that we have in Jesus, that that when God looks down upon us, looks down upon the houses of our hearts, that he sees them completely cleansed from sin. Not even a crumb, there is no sin, not a trace of leaven, not a trace of sin in the houses of our hearts because of what Jesus has done for us. You know, Jewish tradition, when they go through that, they actually use a spoon or a feather and look to get every little crumb of leaven out of their homes. And that's what's happened to us through what Jesus has done. That when God looks down on us, there are no crumbs, no traces of sin in our lives. Because 2 Corinthians 5.21, praise the Lord. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Such a powerful picture. And again, I was really struck afresh by just how perfect the righteousness is that we have in him. And if you've been to a Passover dinner, you'll know that um, unleavened bread, you know, beyond just being a picture of, you know, Jesus cleansing us of our sin, points to Jesus in a bunch of other ways as well, that the the matzah or the unleavened bread that's used in traditional Jewish Passover is not only without yeast or without sin, but it also is striped and pierced with little holes. And so by his stripes, we are healed and we know that he was pierced for our transgressions. And I'm not going to go through a whole lot around the symbolism of other parts of Passover. If you've been to our Passover dinners, you you'll, will have heard that a couple of times. But one of the other things I wanted to mention was that what happens in a Passover dinner is that there are three pieces of unleavened bread, and rabbis or, or others often suggest that that is representative of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's the middle piece of unleavened bread that gets broken Remember, the middle is father, son. The middle one is the son that gets broken. And a piece of that is wrapped up in a a napkin or a cloth and then hidden away until later in the meal. And then it's redeemed as a kid finds it and, and gets a coin. And it's just such a powerful picture of Jesus' body being wrapped in a linen cloth and then being hidden in a tomb for three days. And it's after those three days in the tomb that then Jesus is raised from the dead for our redemption. And, and that resurrection from the dead is what the feast of first fruits is all about. And so, we'll briefly go through the feast of first fruits, and then we'll wrap up our time tonight. And happy to have a conversation if there's any any questions. Leviticus 23 verses 9 to 11, speaking about the feast of first fruits. It says, "When you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest." he shall wave the sheaf before the lord to be accepted on your behalf on the day after the sabbath remember we mentioned before that the, the jewish sabbath was a saturday and so the day after the sabbath was a sunday so the feast of first fruits is celebrated on the first sunday after passover and and after the israelites came into the promised land what they would do this was the time where the barley harvest happened They would bring the first of their barley harvest before the Lord on that first Sunday after Passover, and that was their offering to the Lord, and God then would, you know, deem the rest of their harvest as accepted and and blessed. You bring your first fruits in the same way that we might bring a first fruits offering and believe that God blesses the rest. And it was on exactly that day, the first Sunday after Passover, that Mary Magdalene you know goes to the tomb and sees the stone rolled away and that Jesus is no longer there. When we think about Jesus' resurrection, you know, there's so many powerful truths that go into what happened on that day. But I want to focus on one particularly because it speaks into the fulfillment of the feast of of first fruits, and that's from one Corinthians 15 and verse 20. And again, thinking about the fact that this is called the feast of first fruits, just listen. To this 1 Corinthians 15 20, but now Christ has in fact been raised from the dead and he became the first fruits that is the first to be resurrected with an incorruptible immortal body foreshadowing the resurrection of those who have fallen asleep. The New Living Translation of that same passage, it says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. You see, on, on the exact day that the Jews were offering the first fruits of their barley harvest before the Lord, so that the rest of their harvest could be made acceptable to God, that's when Jesus entered into the promised land of victory over sin and death, and he offered himself before God as the first fruits of a great harvest, a great harvest of millions and millions of souls, you and me, and that when he returns, we will be accepted into that eternal resurrection life with him. He was the first fruits of that resurrected body, living forever with God. And we get to be the rest of that harvest, accepted and blessed by the Lord when he returns. And so, as we've kind of walked through Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits, hopefully, you've kind of begun to see just how perfectly Jesus fulfills each of these feasts. And so I didn't want to cover much more tonight. I just wanted to finish by mentioning again that passage from from Matthew 5. I, I just find it amazing that Jesus himself said that, you know, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. For I assure you and most solemnly say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of the pen will pass from the law until all things which it foreshadows are accomplished. And I really believe that, you know, my own personal conviction and revelation is that you can see that every detail of Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits was accomplished and fulfilled through Jesus' first coming.